The other day, I had to take my laptop to the Apple Store. I'll give it credit. It's a MacBook. It's falling apart, probably, but hey, maybe this will fix it. The battery was not charging, despite being plugged in. Sometimes it would charge. The final straw was when I was sitting at my desk all day. I changed nothing. I did not move the laptop. I did not move the charger. At one point, it went down to about 40%. Then it just started recharging, got itself back up to 100 No rhyme or reason. And I said, I should probably get this looked at. Had the little service notification as well and said, let's get this taken care of. I'm fortunate enough to have a second laptop that I can use as a backup for the next few days. While I'm recording this intro, in fact, as the other one is getting refurbished, rebatterized, whatever the phrase, <laughs> the proper, I guess just getting a new battery would be the more practical way to phrase that. But a laptop, it's kind of something that you maybe don't think about as being an essential item. But with how much of the world is on the internet in the digital space, it kind of is. And after a natural disaster, when you're thinking about what a family might need to recover on the long journey to get their lives back. Laptop, probably not the first thing that jumps to mind, and yet it is such an essential thing. My guests today are Russell Tuckman and Adrian Baker King, who are two of the co-founders of Rebuildy, which is, in very simple terms, like if GoFundMe and a wedding registry combined forces, and they help people who are experiencing natural disasters and trying to get back to some semblance of a normal life because when a natural disaster strikes you usually can't be like "Mm, hold on hold on for a minute please i'm gonna gather all my things i'm gonna get out of here no you have to react right away adrian lived through the most devastating wildfire in california history and he tells that story and how It was a long rebuilding process. He also might be opening up a cheesecake factory. We'll get into all of that in the episode. But you're going to learn a lot about what goes into disaster recover efforts and how it is kind of a Wild West sort of process in some ways. And how Rebuildy is hopefully making it a little easier for people to get the items that they actually need. Lots of good stuff in this episode. We're also going to talk a little bit about branding. So even if... The nonprofit space is not where you particularly are. There's lots of good takeaways from this, and hopefully you'll feel a little inspired by the end of things as well. I'm Joey Held. This is Good People, Cool Things. And here's my conversation with Russell Tuckman and Adrian Baker King of Rebuildy. To start, can you give us your name and your elevator pitch, but also the type of elevator that we're riding on? Sure. My name is Russell Tuckman. I am the co-founder and CEO of Rebuildy. Hey, everybody. Adrian Baker-Kang here, uh, the chief brand officer. I do all the marketing here at Rebuildy, one of the co-founders as well. Rebuildy is a crowdfunding platform to meet wishlist needs for disaster victims and socially vulnerable populations. So you can think of our platform as a cross between GoFundMe and a wedding or a gift registry for specific items for those in And where did the idea of this come from? The idea came from a couple of different places that kind of got melted together. Um, My background is in startups. Uh, I'm a co-founder, founder founder of a few different startups out in LA. I'm born and raised in Los Angeles. And although I live in New York and East Coast now, um, you know, 
spent almost 30 years in LA and being in Southern California, you're affected by primarily two different types of disasters, wildfires and earthquakes. Um, and so when I was in, back, back in 2018, the Woolsey fire um, cut off the entire city of Malibu. Um, and it was very difficult for getting supplies in and out of the city of Malibu. And I remember at the time um, that there was a, I read a news story about a billionaire who owned a yacht in Marina del Rey, put that yacht from Marina del Rey into the Malibu Harbor and loaded it up with emergency supplies. And there were surfers going back and forth from the boat and the beach delivering those supplies. And what that told me is that in the absence of government or in the inability of government, there's got to be a better way to utilize private citizens and local businesses to help fulfill the needs of the, of the community. And I didn't know, you know, at the time we were, I was more focused on the relief side. I knew I wanted to build this idea. I had, you know, it was a couple of months post my last business and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do yet, but I knew that I wanted to do something in climate change space. And when all of this happened, I realized, okay, there's very much a need here. So I took that idea, knowing that I wanted to go back to business school, wrote about this idea in my business school applications and essays, eventually got accepted and went and moved to uh, Washington, D.C., went to Georgetown for my MBA, and happened to meet our other two co-founders, Michael Pollinger, our CTO, um, who's not on this call, and Adrian in, our, in the program, and having conversations with them, realizing that we all have this, this shared passion for social impact. But what I didn't realize at the time was Adrian's background and his experience and how what he has gone through and what he experienced in, the, in his community and those in his network was a far more efficient approach for building this business than what I had originally focused the exact idea on because I didn't want to have to deal with the government sales cycle. And that's a nightmare in itself. So. We, when we made this pivot, a lot of it is based on his experience. So Adrian, please feel free to start jumping. Yeah, thanks, Russell. Um, so I was born and raised in California. Um, grew up in the North Bay, Santa Rosa, and had lived in the same house for all of my life, just about. In 2017, there was the most destructive, devastating wildfire in California state history. It was the Tubbs Fire. In the middle of the night, came roaring over the mountains, you know, these 80 to 100 mile an hour wind gusts driving this absolute inferno that just leveled huge portions of Sonoma County. Unfortunately, my family's home, my childhood home, was part of that destruction. And so my family was effectively woken up at three o'clock in the morning, our neighbor was running down the street, banging on the doors, screaming for people to run from their houses because the street was already on fire. It was moving that quickly. There was no warning. There were no emergency services, no firefighters, no police. So my family escaped with literally the clothes uh, on their backs. My mom even forgot to grab her cell phone when she was running out the door. It was that fast. So the house ended up being destroyed as was most of the entire side of that, that entire side of the town. And we were then left with this huge process of dealing with the recovery and the rebuilding effort. And from what we'd always seen, you know, you hear about earthquakes, you hear about fires, you hear about floods, it's natural disasters are just a part of life in California. However, until you're really experiencing that firsthand, 
you don't realize how long and how involved the recovery process is. It essentially becomes a full-time job where you're dealing with insurance, you're dealing with medical, you're dealing with trying to find housing in one of the worst markets in the United States. And so we were grappling with all these different forces. And it got to the point where when we finally did find an empty rental home, we had to then also deal with refurnishing it, basically building our lives over from scratch, getting things like kitchen tables, chairs, toaster ovens, sofas, all those little things that you would normally accumulate over a lifetime, we now had to replace in a matter of weeks. And during this time, we had this incredible outpouring of community support coming in from across the country, friends, family, former colleagues from different jobs. Everybody wanted to help out. Everybody wanted to pitch in. However, what we witnessed was there was this incredible outpouring of support, but there was no structure or organization to it. And so what ended up happening is we got a lot of uh, very appreciated, but ultimately unneeded supplies. One example is the amount of dinner plates, silverware, cups, bowls, fine china that we received from aunts down in Texas, uncles out in New York. Everybody thought, oh my God, they just lost their home. They need new plates. They need to fill their kitchen back up with stuff again. Unfortunately, everybody had this idea at the same time. And you can now go to my parents' place and open up the cabinets and see literally place settings for probably close to 400 people. We could effectively stock an entire cheesecake factory if we wanted to. And so that got us kind of thinking, Russell and I thinking is, how do we make this process a little bit more efficient? How could we communicate exactly what items are needed during one of the worst times in people's lives? And so that's where rebuilding kind of comes in. And that's what the model that we've been working towards building is sharing exactly what you need, where it's needed, and then allowing everybody to pitch in a little bit to help get people back on their feet. And to take that one step further, one of the things that we've recognized, you know, with the the whole journey of building this this platform and talking with industry experts, sector experts, emergency management uh, professionals and government officials, everybody who is involved, as well as people who have been affected. You can see this for any type of disaster. You can see this going on in Turkey right now. You can see this what happened in Ukraine last year. This is not just a, a domestic thing. This is an international challenge as well, is that in disaster recovery, there is a timing gap that exists between when people are most likely to donate funds to help those in need versus when people are actually going through the recovery process and actually need either those funds or items from those funds. What happens is that it's usually the you know GoFundMes, for example, they're usually set up in the first 30, 60, 90 days post-disaster. That's also when FEMA and local and state governments are involved. That's also when insurance is that, you know, is very much involved. There, you know, that whole process, that whole relief uh, time frame, when people need food and water and shelter and emergency medical supplies, and you know, just get back on their feet, that's handled generally well. I'm not going to say perfect because there's plenty of challenges and problems in that. But what ends up happening is that all the money that comes in that time frame, all the effort, all the supply all the aid, everything that comes in the immediate aftermath generally doesn't last when people actually need it three, four, five, six months post-disaster, a year post-disaster. And that's a huge problem because so many people slip through the gaps at that point, especially 
the underinsured, the uninsured, those in uh, communities of color, low education, low income, people who don't have those networks, they fall through the gaps. These are the people that we've been talking to as some of our, our uh, the users that we that have been on our platform and people we've been interacting with. This is a problem they have. Either FEMA and insurance has not been enough or it's not available at all. I mean, that's a huge issue. That's what happened in Florida for with uh, with Hurricane Ian. But even if they do get aid, even if they do get five, ten thousand dollars on a GoFundMe, that's not going to last them that long, especially if they have to rebuild their entire lives, which could be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more. And so where we come in, we don't want to be a substitute. We're not here to change everything. We're here to be a complement to what exists out there, but a more efficient complement to help people in those later stages, especially, you know, it doesn't have to be an either or scenario. You can do GoFundMe and you can create a, a, a rebuilding campaign as well because they focus on different parts and they focus on different things. Um, you know, you can use GoFundMe, for example, to for uh, temporary shelter, for uh, general contracting purposes, for service for service based individuals like plumbers and electricians. That money is going to go very quickly, and you may not have money to get the basic poster or fridge or mattress that you need to replace uh, in in your own in your in your new location or your new home. And that's a huge problem for so many people in this country. I mean, you know, some basic statistics. I think there's over, I mean, I can pull it up, but there's over 106 million people in this country in the United States that live in designated disaster areas. There were 14 and a half million U.S. homes affected by disaster. That's, and in the last five years alone, that's over $740 billion in disaster costs. You take that a step further and you look at how many people are underinsured or uninsured in this country, which is roughly two thirds, roughly about 64% of the country or so. That's massive number. You know, on an, on a yearly basis, at least uh, roughly about 36 million people are affected by disasters per year on average. That's ten, roughly 10% of this country. Now that's, and that number I'm sure is skewed and it sure is not accounting for everybody. You take that to a global level, you see that in their international scale where even if our, you know, our bureaucratic systems are not the best when it comes to disaster recovery, they're far worse in a lot of other countries that get affected by hurricanes and floods and tsunamis and, and obviously what happened in Turkey with earthquakes. Like it's a problem. And so if there are solutions that can just help people just be a little bit better coming out of this and when they're in the most traumatic times in their lives that's what we want to do that's what we want to help them with we want to try and make this a little bit easier because it is personal to us um i never lost my home to a disaster thankfully knock on wood i'm not going to slam the desk here but um i have been affected by earthquakes i mean my home was damaged my one of my first vivid memories when i was five years old was the 1994 northridge earthquake that affected a huge part of los angeles my home was damaged. We didn't have to move out of it, but there were things that were broken. There were things that needed to be replaced. I know friends. I know people that I grew up with and, and people in the community that I grew up with in Los Angeles that have lost their home to wildfires. What Adrian has gone through and is, is not an isolated experience. It is something that affects more and more people every year. Disasters are increasing in level of frequency 
and, or sorry, and, and amount of, and, and frequency and level of devastation year over year. And that's not going to change anytime soon. It's only going to get worse. There's got to be mitigation and adaptation measures that are constantly being implemented and adapted so that people can get through this experience just a little bit better and a little bit easier. So let's say a, a disaster happens somewhere and someone is, is reaching out to Rebuildy for some kind of support. I guess, I guess not even that they're reaching out. Do you have kind of an outreach program too, where it's like, Hey, we heard about there's, you know, a huge disaster in California or Texas, Florida, wherever the case may be. I picked all Southern, like touching an, a body of water state, but uh, also all places I've lived in. So clearly a bias, but it's fine. We won't worry about that. Uh, but is there kind of like an outreach side of things that you do with that? And like, what does that process look like as folks are, are you know, learning what you offer and developing the list? Because I would imagine, at least in the, the early stages of things, like you might not know everything that you need until you get 400 settings of, you know, of dinner, dinner plates. And uh, unless you know how to make that Cheesecake Factory bread, I think that's probably <laughs> your efforts can be spent better elsewhere. So how, like, do you work with folks and maybe from from other campaigns, it's like, hey, this is what other people have needed. Maybe that's something you need too. Are there any requests that ever kind of like take you off guard? Like, oh, we didn't, we didn't expect that, but that's a, that's a really good thing that they brought up. I think Adrian can address this um, in the, for the most part, but there's there's one piece I want to add um, is that we don't have to wait for a disaster to happen to create a campaign because of the nature of our platform and because we're trying to help people in the later stages. We actually work backwards. We help people who have been affected by you know some of the uh, the campaigns that we have on our website. We just launched in October of 2022, so some of the campaigns on our, on our website are disasters that have happened in the last year. But we are helping people with Hurricane Ian, you know, in Florida um, that happened in the fall of last year, the McKinney and the Mosquito and the Mill fires in California that happened around that time, um, the floods in Kentucky. I mean, these are things that generally people forgot of. And the money is certainly, you know, it's definitely dried out for a lot of the help there. So we're not waiting for a disaster to happen, but that doesn't mean we can't help when it does. Um, Adrian, please feel free to pick that away. Yeah. So Joey, you know, one of the, one of the core tenets of what we believe in is that communities know what they need best and that they are able to best identify their needs and that we are simply a vehicle for then helping to fulfill, um, and basically facilitate that recovery process at a hyper-local level. And so anytime that there is a large-scale disaster or even small-scale, it could be something as small as, you know, a local house fire in the neighborhood and just, you know, one family's house burned down, we immediately begin the process of looking at what are the organizations that act in a sort of community leadership role that would be kind of a first stop for people to turn to in their time of need. Once again, this goes back to some of my personal experience of going through the Tubbs fire back in 2017 and the recovery effort afterwards is it was so big and it was so chaotic. A lot of people turned to the local community churches as being one of the few places that still had their doors open and that were able to then provide shelter, that were then able to provide some form of uh, order, some form of relief at a time when the whole world seemed like it was falling apart. 
And so our approach is really to talk directly with similar organizations, churches, fire departments, schools that really have their finger on the pulse of what is going on in that local community as kind of a way for us to then help direct our efforts and to figure out where we're needed and where we can step in to help. And so an example of this would be in Kentucky last summer, there was unprecedented flooding for the region, southeastern rural Kentucky destroyed entire communities, killed around 40 people, um, just really this drastic event in an area that does not have a lot of financial capacity to take on a large-scale rebuilding and recovery effort. And what we found is that during our time talking with them is that even after FEMA had you know closed up shop and moved on, even after a lot of those initial uh, GoFundMe campaigns, the new cycle had kind of ended, there was still this huge need in the community with a large number of people still not being able to find home again. And so we actually helped to deliver sleeping bags, tents, space heaters um, directly to the region and get those into the hands of the people in need that we learned about through the churches to help them survive and get through the winter uh, as they were still very much deep into this recovery process, even though it had been three, four months after the fact. Maybe this is a, a poor comparison, but what jumped to mind was on Shark Tank, when season two, someone makes an investment, everyone's happy. And then four years later, it's like, hey, what are they up to now? Have you found, or or is that kind of in the works of like almost a, a success story, for lack of a better term for it, of like some of these past campaigns maybe checking in later? Because like you said, if people forget about them, then that's when people fall through the cracks. But bringing that back up to help overall get more people to the platform. Is is there plans for that in the, the works, or have you already started doing that? Right now, because we, we, we don't have that many campaigns yet, we are still growing, um, all of the campaigns on our platform have had direct interaction, you know, the, either the creator or the creator or the beneficiary um, have had direct interaction with our Um. So we are continuously following up. We had a few individuals who were affected by Hurricane Ian that were on our platform, great campaigns on our platform um, around October, November last year. And we have a team member that are still checking in with them. We're still putting, uh, I think we actually just put an um, uh, Instagram post up to highlight one of those campaigns just uh, the last couple of days. So yeah, we are, right now we are doing that. Once we go forward, as we grow and we scale, um, we haven't figured out exactly how we want to do that yet. But there is plans for us. We have talked about internally, how do we create some sort of notification system or some sort of system to address what you just said, to, uh, to follow up with the people when they're in, you know, five, six, seven, eight months post campaign. Where are they at? Can we still help them? Can we still, you know, uh, guide uh, contributions their way? Um, that's very much in the works. It's not something we built out yet, but. It is something we've talked about. Has there been an item that you've seen someone on their wish list where it was like, I don't want to say outside the box, but something you wouldn't expect someone to be like, oh, this this is something I would really like and, and need, you know, to have? Mm. No, because the way it works right now is that our team internally create cur- curated, excuse me, all of the items that are available to choose. So when you go on, you're not picking the Black and Decker, you know, two door 
you know, poster oven, right? You're asking for a poster. And we will source, the way it works right now is we go on and we go, we utilize Amazon to fulfill item purchases for right now. Um, later this year, our plan is to expand and start working with local small businesses in any particular area to actually do item fulfillment. But for right now, to prove out the, the model, um, throughout the minimum viable product, we use Amazon. So when you're requesting a toaster, that toaster um, will, the price of that you're contributing to will include the cost of the item, taxes, and the stripe processing fee, plus any remainder that's left over, which is automatically applied back to that person's campaign or to an item in that person's campaign. Um, the buffer is there to kind of account for the fact that Amazon changes their prices daily. So we want to make sure that um, we we factor that in. Um, we make money right now off like the tip system. That's how we voluntary tips. That's that's our main revenue stream. We'll once we start onboarding small businesses, that's going to be the majority of our, our main revenue stream. So because we curate the items and we choose them, um, choose the categories, there hasn't been any off the wall, so to speak, requests. That being said, you know there are certainly categories on our platform that we've had to add because of people that are creating campaigns have asked, this is our need. For example, we onboarded an individual uh, who lost her home in McKinney Fire in California late last year. And the two items that she really needed more than anything that were not initially items that we had added on the platform were a water heater and tarps for, you know, covering for, for rain and everything. And so we go on, you know, those are requests that they're given to us. We go on, we, you know, we have a whole system of how we add a certain item and pick an image and price it and all that. Um, and we added those items on to the, the website. And so now anybody else can also add, request those specific items, but we've added to her campaign as well. Yeah. So one of the items that we've, um, we've helped with uh, acquiring has been a laptop. And that is not something that really springs to mind when people immediately think of disaster recovery. You know, for example, when people think disaster recovery, they think things like food, they think clothes, they think those really just immediate survival needs. But once again, from my own personal experience of being in this space, having a laptop, having that that ability to access the internet in a way that goes just beyond your mobile device is one of the most critical elements one of the most powerful tools that you can have as a part of that disaster recovery process. And the big challenge is that oftentimes a laptop, even a relatively inexpensive Chromebook, might be too much for any one person to afford to give as a gift, um, especially in an area that may not have as much uh, free financial capital flowing around, that may not have as much um, economic capacity. And so for us being able to crowdfund that item is one of the core goals of our platform of allowing a lot of people to contribute small donations, five, 10, 15, 20 dollars. And then all of a sudden using that power, that power of the crowd is kind of the idea that many hands make for light work. By bringing people together, we can then finance together these items that will have a much bigger impact. I think back to after my family lost our home, and one of the first things I did the very next day was going out to Best Buy and buying just cheap Chromebooks for the entire family for the three, three, four, five of us. And we would literally sit around in a hotel room. It was like a crisis response team. We would sit around a hotel room table with our takeout, 
with our laptops, trying to figure out where we could find a rental home. Just all of us just going through Craigslist, going through Airbnb, going through all of these different sites. And that ended up being the necessary tool that allowed us to then get into stable, longer-term housing. And so while there were needs, traditional needs in terms of the food, the clothing, having that digital connection, having that tool, that laptop, that was absolutely essential to us, to us. And one of the items that we really want to try to get into the hands of people that are in this space. The main value propositions for our platform are that there's an efficient infrastructure for specific items for those in need. Um, there is transparency around what people are contributing to um, and the ability to crowdfund uh, with multiple people, large, big ticket items. And then once we start working with small businesses later this year, um, we uh, have the ability to essentially provide cash injections to local businesses in a local economy, which ultimately strengthen that local economy. And you look at what happened in Paradise, California, um, with, I believe it was, Adrian, correct me if I'm wrong, was it the campfire um, a number of years ago? I think 85%, 90% of that town got wiped out. And it's having a very difficult time rebuilding. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that small businesses are having a very difficult time getting back on their feet in that particular area. It's one of the lifelines for any town, or any village, or any city that gets affected by a disaster is to strengthen the local economy. And that will ultimately make that town, uh, that city, that village have a much better uh, success rate and getting back on getting back on its feet. All right. We might take, I don't think this is too much of a 180, but a lot of folks listening to this show either also own businesses or are entrepreneurs in, in some way. And so I always like kind of talking about the the behind the scenes sort of type of thing. So Adrian, this might be more of a question for you, but as someone with, I would say sometimes good branding ideas, but no eye for design at all. <laughs> How have you worked to, like, I, I think going around the site, one thing that stood out to me is just how clear everything is and how, you know, very like, I hate, I hate saying smooth, but like, it's a very smooth and seamless experience. I think in going around the site, like everything's very clear where, where I can contribute if I want to, if I was interested in starting a campaign, how to do that. So what did that look like as you were kind of putting the brand together? Was, was this finished project what your initial vision was? Or like, were there quite a few stumbles along the way? Yeah. Um, thanks, Joey. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate the, the kind words. It's always a work in progress and it's always something that is constantly evolving. I think for us, a big part of what has driven our design process and our thinking process is recognizing that this needs to be a platform that is easy to use. Because we are attempting to help out in a space where people are already getting pulled in 10 different directions at once. And so the last thing we want to do is add on another complicated, uh, burdensome step to that process. And so our, our thought process was kind of like, what is the absolute minimum that we need to provide this help to somebody in their time of need? And then essentially building out from that. I guess for me, my personal philosophy, it kind of comes down to the idea of subtractive design. How can something be improved by taking away from it rather than adding to it? 
you know, a lot of times there's kind of this idea that, oh, we need to tack on more features. We need to tack on um, the UI UX elements. But for us, it's really what is the absolute minimum that we can do that will get the people that we're trying to help to where they need to be. We're not trying to be the flashiest. We're not trying to have the the newest um, interface or anything like that. For us, it's all about functionality, utility, and ease of use. Yeah, and I, and I want to add to the fact that this has been a, a collective team effort. Um, Adrian has done an amazing job spearheading this, and we have a few other people who have been able to help him make sure that it's done um, from a development standpoint, done to the most in the most efficient ways. Our our CTO, our other co-founder, Michael Collinger, um, and our head of development, uh, Chike Nwankwo. Um, and also our other individual who has helped, been helping us on the marketing and social media side, um, Shelby Hoffling. Um, it has been a collective effort, and plus our advisors too. I mean, we have no shortage of advisors and people around us making sure we're doing this the right way, um, you know, that are experienced and subject matter experts. But uh, it's, it's constantly tinkering. It's constantly listening to the market. Um, but I will say this, if Adrian wasn't part of this team, we couldn't be doing this. Um, Adrian brings something to the table here that nobody else has, you know, besides his personal experience with this, his branding background, his digital marketing background, growth background, nonprofit background is all amazing, incredible experience um, that has been very useful for getting this business and this platform where it needs to be. Like, look at that. Kind words all around. Love to, love to say it. And one, one other thing that I think, at least I always find interesting is, and hopefully everyone listening does too, but I always like to see, like, has anything surprised you in this process? Like, as you're doing this, because there's so many elements to business that you don't think about, and then it pops up in your face and you're like, oh, yeah, that's something else. So what, what's something that surprised each of you? I think for me, what has surprised me the most is realizing how many people are going through this process uh once again whether it's on a local scale with smaller scale events like house fires flooding things of that nature or larger scale climate disasters before we really embarked on this i had kind of an idea from growing up in california but until we really started diving into the data and looking at some of the longer term trends that are forming it's really been shocking to me to witness how big of an issue this currently is and how it is only growing in size. And so for me, that is looking at where, where we can think of new solutions to help communities, to help local economies get back on their feet in a sustainable, holistic, community-oriented way. I think for me, what surprises me the most is... And I mean, you, you kind of assume this kind of knowing, seeing the news cycle and just kind of, again, growing up in California myself as well. Um, but how dysfunctional disaster recovery is in this country um, and on an international level. I mean, it is a patchwork system of nonprofits, NGOs, individual, individual volunteers and some government insurance functionality really helping in this, this area. And it's not done in any sort of efficient way. And, you know, one of the things that has kind of stood out to me is talking to some of the people that have created campaigns on our platform 
and just understanding, you know, you have to have some sort of an emotional barrier because the, everybody that has gone through this is it's such a traumatic experience that you want to sympathize and you want to empathize with everything these people are going through. But at the same time, if you take on those, those stresses and that trauma yourself, it can become overwhelming. So there has to be a barrier there. But even with the barrier and listening to the stories that some of these people have gone through and how either FEMA or government or insurance have not been helpful to the way that they need them to be or have left them behind, it's, it's incredibly sad. It's, um, it can be emotional, even if you have that barrier up. And it's heartbreaking to hear this. And so what, for me, just understanding the full depth of what people in this, in this situation have really gone through and the limited resources that they really have available to them. You think there's all these limitless, limitless resources. There's not. It's very limited for a lot of people. Um, that's been the most surprising thing for me is just the level of inefficiency that exists and permeates across the entire disaster recovery spectrum. Well, maybe this last question can inspire some, some more efficiencies because you're almost off the hook here, but we always like to wrap up with a top three. And for y'all, top three brands doing good work. One that I'd like to plug right now is After the Fire, which has been this fantastic organization that sprang up in Sonoma County after the wake of the 2017 Tubbs Fire um, that I have just been talking about, talking about, talking about. Um, but there are some really fantastic people there. They're really working to build out new connections in the space and provide some incredible resources. Beyond that, I would also say, as always, you know, once again, just looking at some of the big names, Red Cross is a fantastic organization. They've been doing, they've had a terrific global presence around the world, um, especially in the wake of the earthquake in Turkey. Um, they're a very easy way to donate and to give back to the community um, and always an inspiration to us that we use to help build into our model. And then also, you know, once again, just uh, I would say just a big word of thanks to GoFundMe as well for also being an inspiration to our platform and recognizing the impact that a lot of individual community members can have towards achieving great things. And for us now, it's basically how do we take that same philosophy and how do we make it a little bit more uh, specific and tailored to this space of disaster recovery? Um, so once again, After the Fire, Red Cross, and GoFundMe, all fantastic organizations. And just to echo on that, um, yeah, After the Fire USA has been phenomenal. We've talked with them. So helpful. The other ones that I want to highlight from my end are definitely Team Rubicon. Um, Team Rubicon is probably the one of the biggest names um, in the game here. And they, you know, disaster after disaster, crisis after crisis, they are constantly doing a great job. Um, they also have Reach Out Worldwide, which is a similar in a, a similar capacity to, to Team Rubicon. Um, I think these organizations, they get on the ground, they help people in their time of need. I, I mean... I don't think there's any kind of greater calling than really helping those who don't have the capacity to help themselves. Um, and then the one other organization that I'm you know, familiar with and I think is a great organization, um, they're doing some things that are similar to us, but I think they're more an organizational higher level than us, um, is an organization called Good360. Um, I think they are something a great company to learn from and to see what they're doing in the space. But 
There are so many nonprofits, so many NGOs, so many VOADs, voluntary organizations, active and disaster that are in this space. I mean, there's no shortage of people that and organizations that want to help those who have gone through crises and, and natural disasters. Um, I think the challenge with it is that there is, it's a patchwork system, like I said before. And for those in need, it creates even more of a headache. You know, all these people want to help. Doesn't mean that everybody can help. Um, you know, I'm not saying that we can help everyone. I want to, I want us to help as many people as possible. I just think that for those who have been affected by any disaster, any help that can be offered is, is good help. Um, if it's coming from the right place, because, you know, there are plenty of people and organizations that try and take advantage of those who have been affected. And it's the arguably one of the worst things that any human being can do to another human being. So all of the organizations that we just mentioned are all ones that are doing the right thing here. Yeah. Anytime I see something where it's like, oh, this million dollar campaign turned out to be a scam. I'm just like, who, yeah. who is it? It's terrible. Yeah. But we're here, we're here for the positive stuff. So if people do want to help another organization doing well, Rebuildy, where can they find y'all? You can go to our website, www.rebuildy.com. Um, R-E-B-U-I-L-D-E-E. -E. Uh, two E's at the end. Um, just go on. If you're, if you're in need, if you have gone through a disaster, um, anytime in the last couple of years, please feel free to go ahead and create a campaign or reach out to us, um, info at rebuildy.com. We're happy to get in touch with you and help you through this process. Um, if you're looking to contribute, um, we always want to encourage people to contribute and help out others. Um, you can go on, discover campaigns, contribute. It's a very easy process. If you do it on your phone, you can use Apple Pay. Makes it even easier. Um, but yeah, our website, please, you know, we have social media, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, so check us out. Uh, my name is Russell. Um, I'm happy to always talk to whoever is willing to talk to me. One thing that we want more people to know about is that when it comes to disaster recovery, it is a long-term process and it really takes a village. And so even giving a small amount, helping out your neighbors, helping out your friends, helping out your family, it goes a long way. I know for myself, for my family, it would not have been possible without the help of all of the, all of the different community members from all walks of life that really showed up in our time of need and were able to help us get back on our feet. And for that, I'll always be grateful um, and really just looking to help multiply some of those effects and share that with other people in kind of the same space. Fantastic. Well, continued success to both you and Rebuildy. Adrian Russell, this was wonderful. Thank you again. Joey, thanks so much. Absolutely. Of course, we have to end with a corny joke, as we always do. <laughs> what did the tie say to the hat? What did it say? <laughs> I'll hang around here. You go on ahead. Ah. Good afternoon, people. <laughs> All right. Good People, Cool Things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you were a fan of this episode, go ahead and hit that follow button. That helps more people hear the show. You can send me a message, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Thank you to all of the guests who have been on Good People, Cool Things. You can check out all the old episodes via goodpeoplecoolthings.com. As always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. Ooh.